Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. Well, everything has a starting point. You had a starting point. I had a starting point. Some of us were started on purpose. Others of us were more of an accident. Maybe not quite planned exactly the way our parents wanted. If I were to be honest with you, about my, I was about 12 years of age when my mum broke the news to me that I was an accident. <laughs> but I'm her favourite son, so I'll claim that. I'm her, her only son, but we'll leave that as it is. But everything has a starting point. Our relationships have a starting point. Parenting has a starting point. That moment when our child comes into the world and we go, I've read every book, but I have no idea what I'm doing. A career has a starting point. That moment when we realize that there was something that we wanted to do with our life, and we started our, our life on a course trajectory. This is my daughter Phoebe, by the way. If you haven't met her, she's going to make use of some of the blocks that I had planned to use later on. This building had a starting point. A cornerstone somewhere was the first stone laid that began this incredible facility. And we as a church, we have a starting point too. That someone decided at some point that they would start a church here in Gawler. And what an incredible blessing it is that we started at all because here we are. And across generations, we have seen the truth of the gospel proclaimed across this district because someone chose to start this church. See, everything has a starting point. But one of the things we don't think about too much is that our faith has a starting point as well. That we, we all of us have a faith framework of some sort. And it's a framework that we were given most of us as children. Somewhere along the line as we were growing up as a young person, we were given a faith framework by our parents or by a pastor, by a local church. And so it doesn't matter whether you attended a church, a synagogue, a mosque, whether you went to a temple, whether you were just at home, whether you went to Sunday school, whether you went to a church like this, it doesn't matter. All of us with our faith, it has a starting point of some sort. Or if we didn't actually attend anywhere, if we didn't grow up in a religious sort of family, we still have a starting point for our faith. We gathered an understanding about God and about the universe based on things that we cobbled together from what we'd heard around the place, or things we'd read, news articles, YouTube clips, whatever your journey looked like. When you cobble together faith, you have an understanding of faith of some sort. 
And that was your starting point. And most of us, our faith generally looks something like this. There's some sort of shared understanding that most of us, if we were think about faith, faith generally and our understanding of God generally understands that God is good. Most of us would appreciate that God punishes evil and rewards good. Some of us have, most of us would have some sort of framework around faith around that, that God punishes evil and rewards people that do good things. And for, for many of us, there's a framework that God answers prayer. That somehow when things aren't going the way that we want them to, we can reach out verbally or in our minds to someone, something, somewhere. Even though we might not understand it, when the plane starts going down, we pray, oh God, something to someone, somewhere. There's something in us within our starting point of faith that tells us there's something out there that we can pray to, that that thing, whatever it is, knows who we are, gives a rip about us, and can do something about our situation. For many of us, we don't even realize that's part of our faith formation and our starting point. And sometimes that understanding of faith was leveraged against us by our parents. You know, you better be a good little boy or a good little girl because God rewards good and punishes evil. Anyone ever hear that? Sunday school? God is watching you, so you better not steal, or whatever. And I grew up in the church. I grew up hearing all the Bible stories, and I remember as a young boy being convinced, I think I've told you this before, being convinced that faith was a framework that neatly packaged all the things that I wasn't allowed to do in one neat little book like this one. That was what I understood faith was. It was just a book that had been packaged, which could have had just had it on its opening page. No. And that would have been enough. I don't know why it needed to be so big. Because faith, I thought, was just a bunch of rules that we needed to live by. And the tension is, the problem is, is that the framework that we were given as children about faith and about God and about how all of this fits together in the world doesn't tend to hold up very well in the adult world. The, the framework that we were given as children with Bible stories, if it, was, if it was the Bible, then it would have been stories of Noah and stories of Adam and Eve and stories of Abraham and stories about Jesus and healing and, and all those, David and Goliath and, and all of that sort of stuff, all those Bible stories. And those Bible stories are great, and they, I believe that they are true in the sense that they were intended. And they, they are wonderful for building a foundation of wonder and awe and imagination in children, specifically. And they are really important for helping us form our worldview as people, as we start moving into the world. It's vital. But when we start to marry up those teachings, those Bible stories, with our adult faith, with real questions about the world, for many of us, that faith starts to struggle under the weight. It starts to struggle. Some of those questions for us, I'm going to knock that coffee off, aren't I? Um, some of those questions for us, are, how do we reconcile a good God? 
with a world that's filled with evil? Why is it that evil seems to flourish when I thought, God, you were meant to be a God of justice? Why is it that bad things seem to happen to good people? Where are you, God? What do we do with that? I thought you were a God of love, but I don't feel that today. I thought you were a God that answered prayer, but my, my nan is the most godly person I know, and you didn't answer her prayer because my brother still died. In a book called Case for God by a woman called Karen Armstrong, she, 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 writes the obs- she observes the tension that I'm talking about. She says this, many of us, many of us, have been left stranded with an incoherent concept of God as we journey into adulthood. We learned about God about the same time that we learned about Santa Claus. And while our understanding of the Santa Claus phenomenon evolved and matured, and because all the kids aren't in the room, most we all know, we should know by now that the Santa Claus phenomenon is not true in terms of a man in a red suit coming down a chimney. I'm sorry if that's the bubble that gets broken for you this morning. Hey, God does... God does what God does in that. But our understanding of the Santa Claus phenomenon, she writes, evolved and matured. But the thing is, our theology, our understanding of God, our thinking about God, remained somewhat infantile. Not surprisingly, she continues, when we attained intellectual maturity, many of us rejected the God that we had inherited from our parents or our grandparents and denied that He even existed. Why? Because our faith didn't mature as we did. It was left in this infantile state. And so what does that mean? It means that we need a new starting point. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to ask this question. What if we hit the reset button with regard to our faith? What if we didn't know anything about faith? What if we pretended that was where we're at? Where would we begin? Where would we start? And some of you will already know some of the stuff that we're talking about. Some of you might know almost everything that we're going to present over these next few weeks. Some of you, this is all new. And I'm glad that you're here, if that's your story. I'm glad you're joining us online, if that's your story. If you could start your faith journey anywhere, I would want it to be right here right here, today. Because my hope is that throughout this series, we can help you connect the dots. That we can help to reconcile something of your adult life and the Christian journey of faith. And what I hope that you realize is that they are not mutually exclusive. That you can be an intelligent person in your life and believe in Jesus the Christ because God asks us to be both, to be informed and to be faith-filled. And that's where I want to take you over these next eight weeks. But we need to approach things a little bit differently. 
Because where we start our faith as a child is very, very different to where we start our faith as, a, as an adult. And here's part of the problem. For many of us, the problem has to do with this. This is the Bible. The Bible, as most of you would know it. Is that what you recognize it to be? The Bible, I'll even open it. It's, it's black, it's hard to tell, isn't it? I'll open it. Here it is. Holy Bible. It's my preaching Bible. For many of us in our framework of faith, this was the problem. This, right here. We were told about this book, the Bible. We were told that it was infallible. We were told that it was God's Word. We were told that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We were told that it doesn't have any mistakes. And just before I go any further, before you start writing an email, forming it in your mind, I believe those things. I believe that this is all of those things. And as a child, we accept those things because we're taught them by an adult, by a pastor, by a parent, by a priest. And we believe, because we are taught that everything in here is on equal terms, that this book is just one book. It is one presentation of the truth. It is one package. And we were presented that this book, which it is not, was all equally understandable, which it is not, was all written exactly and framed exactly the same way, which it is not. We never understood where it came from. And though we greatly value it, and most of you would flinch extraordinarily if I put my coffee cup on it, because we don't do that, most of us don't know what it says. Most of us accepted what our parents told us and kind of left it at that. We flick it open and have a bit of a read from time to time. And Most of us at some point in our life, in our faith journey, we start reading the Bible in a year and get about this far, because that's Deuteronomy. But most of us don't know what's in here. Because we've just accepted what we were told. It's true that this is an infallible book written by God. And the problem was, and the problem is, that if someone, usually in university as we're growing up, usually about that age, if someone can present a compelling argument about this book that pulls into question one element of this, one account of something, one questionable statement, verse, observation, if they can challenge our perspective about God as presented in this book in one small way, then this is suddenly not what we thought it was. This, this suddenly can't be infallible if there's one bit that isn't what we thought it was. This can't be the Word of God presented if there's one bit that's not as we expected it to be. And all that needs to happen is they pull out one piece and the whole thing comes tumbling down. Because when life happens, 
and we begin to call into question what we were taught, we find ourselves in environments where people don't respect this, because there's lots of them, lots of those environments around. In fact, most of our culture doesn't respect this like the way you or I do. We find ourselves in those environments, and this has been called into question in some way. Then we don't have anything left if the Bible says was what our faith was grounded upon. And so we're not left with anything to stand on. And so here is where we're headed over these next eight weeks. And here is where you might misunderstand me. And here is where that you're going to have a few thoughts and a few preconceived ideas challenged. And here is where you might want to send an email. I want you to hang on. Are you ready? The Bible says, the Bible says, is not an adequate starting point for our faith, particularly for those of us who are adults returning to faith or rediscovering faith or questioning faith. The Bible says is not an adequate position to begin. Because I know what the Bible says, people say. I've been there. I know what the Bible says, but tell, let me tell you about my job. I know what the Bible says, but let me tell you about my divorce. I know what the Bible says, but let me tell you about my children. Let me tell you about my unanswered prayers. Let me tell you about all the things that aren't going as I thought they would. Because someone said that in the Bible, God said everything would work out for good. But let me tell you about my journey of faith. I've been there, not interested, people will say. Adults will say. So if we're going to restart our faith, if we're going to have a starting point for our journey, we need to offer something more than the Bible says. And the good news is, the good news is, the Bible says was never intended to be the starting point of faith. The Bible says was never intended to be the starting point of the Christian faith. Because the Bible as we know it is actually this book. It's 66 different ancient documents translated into English from two original languages. It was compiled together into the form that we know it now in the Protestant church and was officially recognized about 250 to 300 years after the events of Jesus' life. 250 to 300 years went by before any single follower of Jesus could come to faith based on what the Bible says. It didn't exist. But hang on, hundreds and thousands of people, by the time 300 AD came around, hundreds and thousands of people had already become followers of Jesus. There was no New Testament that existed. All the Roman and Greek-speaking citizens that came to faith didn't even believe in the Old Testament. They didn't get that. They don't care. How is it that they became Jesus' followers? If it wasn't the Bible, what was their starting point? That's where we're going today. We're going to go where they went, to the starting point of faith. And what we're going to do this morning 
with the time that we've got left, is we're going to listen in on a conversation, on a conversation between a man called the Apostle Paul and a group of Athenian philosophers that were gathered at the Areopagus. And these philosophers knew nothing about Jesus. They never heard anything about Jesus. This was their starting point. And these events that we're going to read about took place about 20 years after Jesus' life and ministry. We're headed to Acts chapter 17. Now, before you accuse me of having cyclical reasoning, but I'm going to use the Bible to defend the Bible, what I need to tell you is that this, this, what we're about to read from the book we now know as Acts is actually a travel journal recorded by a man named Luke. He was a doctor. And he set about compiling the events as he understood them about what happened around Jesus, his life, ministry, death, and resurrection, and what happened in the early church. He set about compiling an orderly account of this for generations that would come after him. And he traveled with Paul as Paul planted churches around the Mediterranean Rim, and he took notes, and he formed a journal, and we have that journal that we know as the book of Acts. It landed in the New Testament. And this part was written before any of the New Testament existed, before any of the Gospels were written, before Paul had written any of his letters that Luke could, could discover and write about, before any of that. And what we read about from Paul is that Paul was a man who knew what he knew because of who he knew. When we read and listen to the words of Paul, as he begins a starting point for the, these Athenian philosophers, Paul knew what he knew, not because he'd read it anywhere. He knew what he knew because of who he knew. He knew Peter, the disciple. He knew James, the brother of Jesus. He knew John, the beloved disciple. He knew about Jesus because the people that he knew knew Jesus and met Jesus, after he had been resurrected. And Paul, by the way, if you didn't know, was the same age as Jesus. He was Jesus' contemporary. So this, this, what we're about to read this morning is a conversation, overhearing a conversation that happened. Not because it's a Bible story, but because this is a reliable account written down and recorded whilst the people that knew of Jesus' life were still around to refute it. This happened. In fact, the writings of the Apostle Paul predate the Gospels. Paul's ministry, all the, the, the letters, Romans, Corinthians, all the stuff, all those letters in the New Testament, actually all predate the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus. They were all written in the early 50 A.D., so Paul is a historical figure, and no historian worth their salt disagrees with this. That he wrote letters, and that some of those letters appear in our Holy New Testament. No historian worth their salt disputes any of that. And so if you grew up in church, what you'd know about Paul is that he wasn't always a Jesus follower. He starts as a persecutor of Christians. 
He starts as a Pharisee, steps onto the pages, overseeing the execution of one of the disciples, Stephen. One of the apostles, Stephen, sorry. And he tried to stamp out this movement called the Way, these followers of Jesus. But then he becomes a Jesus follower. Not because he read it, but because something happened. So let's listen into our conversation. And our goal today is not to convince you that any of this is true. You'll see it on the screens. Our goal is to listen to how someone who knew the people who knew Jesus presented the message of Christianity to a group of people that had never heard any of it before. And in this conversation, I believe, is the starting point of the Christian faith. So let's go. You ready? That's an intro if ever I've heard one. Acts 17, starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, that is two of his fellow missionaries, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city, the city of Athens was full of idols, altars everywhere. And so he reasoned in the synagogue, the local church, the local Jewish church, with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, Greeks that had become, had become followers of Yahweh, become Jewish converts. So he reasoned with them in the synagogues as well as in the marketplace day by day, those that happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean, as in these are philosophers who don't know about all this religion stuff, they can't figure it out, and so just have fun in an extra glass of wine. That's what Epicureans believed. And Stoic philosophers, that is, give, an, give us enough time and we'll be able to figure all of this out. Give us enough equations, we'll figure all of this out. A group of Stoic and Epicurean philosophers began to debate with Paul. Some of them asked him, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And that was a big deal. Because to advocate for a foreign god, you needed permission in Athens. Because people had come in and advocated foreign gods before, and it caused, a, caused civil wars. Houses were burned, families were torn apart. And so if you wanted to come in and present a new idea philosophically, you needed permission to do that. And because they said this, the passage continues, because Paul was preaching the good news about the resurrection. Now remember, everything that Paul knows as he pre preaches the good news, he learned from people who knew Jesus. Everything he learned about the resurrection, he learned from people who saw a risen Jesus. Nothing. He hasn't read about any of this. So let's continue. Verse 19, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. That is, on the hill of Ares, where they said to him, May we know about this new teaching that you are presenting. I need to, we need to hear about this if we're going to approve this new philosophy in our midst, amidst all the others that we've got. And I've got a picture of the Areopagus. Should be the next one, Mark. This is the Areopagus, that mountaintop. That is where this event happened, where Paul stood right there on the top of that hill was where he stood and presented to the council of Athens that which I am about to share with you. This is an actual place that actually happened. And they said, 
You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. Because it says all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So they wanted to know a bit about this one. And for our benefit, get this, for our benefit, Paul starts from the beginning for this group. He stood up in the meeting and he says to the the meeting of the Areopagus, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around your town, I looked and saw altars and objects of worship. And I even found an altar with the name Unknown God inscribed on it. They had altars everywhere to all sorts of different gods. Gods for the harvest, gods for the sun, gods for the pavement, gods for the buildings, gods for the earth, gods for the water, gods for your love, gods for romance, gods for family, gods for whatever you could think of, gods for thunder, gods for lightning. Gods, gods, gods everywhere. And what Paul found fascinating was he stumbled across this altar, just, just there, and it said, to an unknown God. So here they are with gods, altars for every God you could imagine, and they have this unknown, to an unknown God. What is, the, what is that? And I, I think it was that they weren't sure. Well, what Paul picks up on is that they didn't know. They weren't sure about any of this. All they were doing was ar- they were arguing and testing philosophies, and every time they had a new idea, they erected a new altar. But they, they left this altar to the unknown God there. Why? Because they didn't really know who God was or how this all fit together. But just in case that God arrived, a God that they didn't have an altar for, they could go, oh, we were expecting you. We just didn't know what to call you, and so this is your altar right here, because we didn't, we didn't know what to call you, but just in case that God arrives, there is the altar for Him to the unknown God. And this points to the uncertainty for many of us around religion. For many of us, we don't know what to do with religion. It's so intangible, it's so unclear in some ways. And this altar to the unknown God illustrates why for some of you, you come to church at Christmas and Easter and not at any other time. Just in case. Just in case. This whole God thing is real. At least you checked in on the two holidays to celebrate His birth and His death. Just in case. For some of us, that's that altar to the unknown God. It's just in case all of this is real, I'll check in at church, scan my QR code now, because that counts, God can check on that. Just in case. But you're not sure. You don't really know. And Paul says, observing all of this, he says, you're very religious. You believe something is out there, but you're not sure. So let me tell you about it. And he continues, he says, you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is not an ignorant as in an insulting thing. It's you don't know. You don't know what it is that you are worshiping. You're guessing, aren't you? He says. 
Yeah, we're guessing. You don't know, do you? No, we don't really know. Otherwise, we wouldn't have that unknown altar thing lying around. If we knew, we wouldn't need that. Paul says, let me tell you what it is that you do not know. Verse 24. The God, not a God, the God, who made the whole world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and the Lord of earth. And he doesn't live in temples made by human hands. This God that I'm telling you about is bigger than anything that could possibly exist. So he, he can't possibly be a God inscribed as a, like etched in stone or whatever. He's bigger than all of that. He doesn't even fit on your puny altar to the unknown God. This God that really exists is beyond all of that. He cannot fit in temples made by human hands. He's bigger than all of that. It's almost like you never find the artist in the painting. Why? Because the artist is bigger than the painting. And so our God, as Paul presents it and as we believe it, our God is bigger than his piece of artwork, the world. He's bigger than all of that. And he's not, he continues, served by human hands, as if he needed anything. He doesn't need anything from you, rather. He himself is the one who gives life and breath and everything else to anyone that might need it. From one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. This God is not just a God of... Athens, or a God of Judea, or a God of a specific location. This is a God that transcends the boundaries of our cultural understanding. And He did all of this. Why? So that they would seek Him, you and I, that we would seek Him out and re perhaps even reach out and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us. The, the imagery here is that we would seek Him, look for Him. But that we would reach out is like groping in the darkness. You sort of wander into a room and you sort of grope around trying to find the light switch, knowing that it's there somewhere. That is what Paul's talking about, that this God is not very far from any one of us. And that we, if we could just so find Him, He is not far. And then Paul does something extraordinary. He quotes from the Greek poets, and he says, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. It's almost like he's saying, you nearly got there. You've got part of this right, but let me fill in the picture. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, he says, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Come on, guys. He, he's bigger than all of that. He's not made by human design or skill. And in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, such unknowing, such groping around in the dark. But now, now, He commands all people everywhere to change their mind. Why? wants everyone to repent. Why? Because a few years ago, not very far 
from here, something happened. In verse 31, he says, For he set a day that he will judge the world with justice by a man, the man. That is Jesus. He's already mentioned his name. That's why he's in front of the council. That he has appointed and he has given proof. You mean evidence? No. Proof. You mean a suggestion of? No. Proof that this man is the appointed one of God. He's given this proof to everyone. But, but Paul, there's no proof in religion. This is all just ideas. We believe, we have faith, we trust, we hope. But you, this is religion. You can't have proof, can you? You're telling us there's evidence? No, I'm telling you there's proof. That's why I'm here, Paul says. And that proof is that God raised that man from the dead. I didn't read about this, says Paul. I had a conversation with the people who saw this happen. I didn't read about this in a book. This isn't a Bible story. I'm standing here before you, says Paul, because I know people who knew Jesus who saw this happen. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, they fell on their knees and they repented. And they set about destroying all of their idols and their altars. That's not what it says. But you didn't flinch. None of you flinched. I don't know if anyone online flinched, but you didn't flinch. If this was a Bible story, that's how this would have ended. It would have ended all as good news, all as a wonderful resolution. But maybe we don't... If we'd read this, we might have known. No, instead it says, some of them sneered at him. Oh, seriously? That's where this is going? Oh, we might be God-worshipping Athenians. But we know one thing, and that's when people die, they stay dead. Get him out of here. Get Paul out of here. Because ah, that doesn't. But then others said, hmm, I want you to say that with me. Those of you joining me online as well, even if you're sitting there in your room on your own, you can get weird for a minute. You write in the chat if you want to. You ready? One, two, three. Hmm. Let's say it one more time. Hmm. We want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. So, Paul, you're trying to tell me that you know people just over there in Judea, you call it? It's just hot there all the time, isn't it? Well, none of us have really visited there. It's like, so we don't really know. But just over there, you know people who, who witnessed the resurrection? Like friends of yours? Hmm. And Paul would respond, I didn't believe it either. 
In fact, I began my journeys trying to stamp out this rumor called the way. But then one day, I met the risen Jesus. And so I'm here to tell you that God has done something as proof, not evidence, proof that He knows us, that He loves us, that He can be known. So, the starting point for the Christian faith is not the Bible says. It's not belief. It's a question. And the question is, not were Adam and Eve really naked? It's an interesting one. You could talk about that at home. Wasn't, was there really a seven-day creation? You can debate that if you like. It's not, can the world really flood? Because, Josh, I've heard that the atmosphere can only hold enough water to, to put two inches of water on the ground across the entire earth. So how is it that we can drown in two inches of water? You can talk about that on your own time. Those are interesting, but they're not the question. The question that we need to wrestle with as we start, restart our faith is this simple question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? All the other questions are interesting. And scholars have deba debated a bunch of those things for two millennia now. But the question that you and I need to start with is who is Jesus. Because Paul believed it. And he presented it to people who could go down the street and disprove him by having a conversation. Yet, somehow, before this ever existed, hundreds of thousands of Christians came to faith in Jesus Christ, not because of something they read, but because of what they heard from people who saw it, who witnessed it, and who could disprove it in a moment with a conversation, yet they didn't. Why? Because we need to ask the same question. Not is this true. Our question is, who is Jesus? Because that is the question that Paul started with. And then when, God, when Paul had the opportunity to present this from the beginning to someone who knew nothing else, he presented Jesus and his resurrection. That's the starting point. So regardless of your doubts, the question I want to leave you with this morning is who is Jesus. Not all the other stuff. Based on an historical account that happened at a place, you saw it, you're left with the question, who is Jesus? Because he's either everything or he's nothing. It can't be anything in between. When we answer that question, everything else starts to answer itself. We gain a framework 
to start to understand everything that's in here. But we don't start here. We start with the question, who is Jesus? So that's where I'm going to leave it today. But the good news is, we're just getting started. We've got seven more weeks to talk about this. But my prayer for you this morning is that this would be a starting point for you. If you've never heard any of this, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? And this might be enough. What you've heard today might be enough that you go, actually, I feel like I want to trust this Jesus. Then I want to talk with you about that. There's elders here that can pray with you about that. But if you have been a part of this church for a while and you've been doing the faith thing, but you've never answered this question for yourself, my prayer is that this would be your restart point to start piecing things together so that you have a faith more robust than the one of a child, but instead a faith that can withstand the challenges of the world around us. So as I close, I've got two questions for you to answer this week. The first question is this. You can talk about these in your car ride home or around the dinner table, in your life group if you've got one or with a friend at work, whatever. The questions are this. First one. How and when did your faith journey begin? How and when did your faith journey begin, if you have one? And secondly, how well has your faith stood up to the rigors of your adult life? When did your faith start? And how has that faith stood up, really, to the rigors of adult life? Those two questions, if you answer them, if you ponder them, if you think about them, will pave the way for everything that we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. So my question, who is Jesus? I'm going to leave you with that. But if you want to watch this again, if you want to double-check what I've said and then word an email, if you've misunderstood, if you're not sure, I want you to watch this sermon again. You can get it online. There's a recording of it on our YouTube channel, on our Facebook page. You can listen to it on a podcast while you're mowing the lawn. I don't care. What I want you to do is if there's anything about this that didn't make sense, listen to this, watch it again, because this is the starting point which will help everything else make sense. So would you pray with me? Loving and gracious God, I thank you for this incredible truth, this word. What a starting point. What an opportunity. Lord, we pray for your grace to receive this. Lord, for many of us, we acknowledge that this is a bit strange. But there's things about this that press on our preconceived ideas of you and of faith. And Lord, we don't know what to do with that. So Lord, would you give us the grace to receive what we've heard? Would your spirit do a work to help us understand it? Would you make time for us to go back and review it? But then Lord God, would you give us the wisdom to take seriously restarting that we might find a hope and a faith that is robust enough to journey in this world when everything seems like it's falling apart.
Lord, we thank you for this blessing. We praise you for who you are and what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks once again for joining us. If this service has been a blessing to you, why not share it with someone you know? Or better yet, post it on your social feed because you never know how God might use what you share to bless someone you didn't even know needed it. Special thank you if you contribute towards making this ministry possible. We are so grateful. If you'd like to help, head to gaulyuniting.org.au and follow the links to begin giving. God bless you and we'll see you next time.